Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In late 1971, at a lovingly kept home in the western suburbs of Miami, Florida, the phone rang. 49-year-old Alice Repo, who shared the house with her husband Don and their children, answered the call. It was her husband calling from Miami International Airport. Second officer Donald Repo was a flight engineer for Eastern Airlines, whose job it was to monitor and operate aircraft operating systems. It was a complex and demanding job that by its very nature required Don to make countless flights throughout the year. No matter how many times he reassured his wife how safe it was, Alice never tired of receiving these calls and the relief she felt at hearing the sound of his voice again, telling her he'd just landed and would be home soon. After the pair exchanged goodbyes, Alice had just placed the receiver back in its holder when the phone rang again. Hello, she said, assuming it to be Don again, having perhaps forgotten to tell her something. Then a strange voice came on the line. Don has been killed in a plane crash. Hello, replied a stunned Alice. Who is this? But the line went dead. When Don arrived home a short time later, the two of them tried to wrap their heads around what had happened. Perhaps it was a colleague playing a deeply unfunny joke, thought Alice. But Don couldn't think for the life of him who would do such a thing. It was just over a year later, in the evening of December 29th, 1972, that Alice received another of Don's reassuring calls. This time... He was calling from JFK Airport in New York. Don's next flight, Eastern Airlines Flight 401 from JFK to Miami, would be taking off shortly. With all things going to plan, he said, he'd be back home around midnight. 
It had just gone 8pm when Don made his way into the cockpit of the L-1011 TriStar to begin his pre-flight checks alongside 55-year-old Captain Bob Loft and his 39-year-old co-pilot, First Officer Albert Stockstill. With over 30,000 hours of flying time under his belt, Captain Loft was one of the more experienced pilots at Easton, while the plane, by comparison, number 310 of the TriStar fleet, was relatively new, having completed its first commercial flight only three months previously. Joining the flight deck crew in the cockpit that night was Angelo Donadeo, a technical specialist for the L-1011. Donadeo was not working that night, however, but simply hitching a ride back to Miami. As the men completed their checks, a steady stream of passengers began to board the plane, while the ten flight attendants that completed the plane's crew guided them on to their seats. Two attendants, 24-year-old Stephanie Stanich and 27-year-old Patricia Geisels, part of a close-knit team, were at the back of the plane, smiling warmly at the passengers as they arrived. In a photograph, taken just before their flight up from Miami, as nine of the women posed happily together while the other took the photo, their fondness for each other can easily be seen in their relaxed and cheery demeanours. They even joke among themselves, with one squeezing Stephanie's neck in a mock choking gesture while Stephanie pulls a funny face, and another puts bunny ears behind Patricia's head, strangely marking them out among their peers. Among the passengers being guided to their seat by Stephanie and Patricia was Rosario Messina, a 46-year-old tailor currently on vacation with his family in Florida, who'd been called back to New York suddenly for a business trip. Shortly before leaving the family, Rosario had a terrible premonition, telling his wife Sadie afterwards that he was certain he was going to die young and that he didn't want to leave her. He'd planned initially to fly from LaGuardia Airport, but changed his ticket at the last minute to a non-stop flight from JFK so he could be back with his family sooner. But just after 10 past 9 p.m., with all the passengers settled and the pilots ready to go, the flight attendants took their places in the jump seats and the plane slowly taxied over to the runway. At 9.20 p.m., Captain Loft eased forward on the throttle and the plane took off into the air. You're listening to Unexplained and I'm Richard McLean Smith. It was roughly three hours after taking off from JFK Airport with Flight 401 on its approach to Miami International that Captain Loft instructed First Officer Stockstill to lower the landing gear. Despite Stockstill then affirming the gear had been lowered, only two of the three landing gear lights on the control board had turned green, suggesting the landing gear in the nose had failed to come down. More often than not, such an issue was nothing more than a faulty light, easily resolved by checking the desk, and even in the worst case scenario, if the wheels had failed to lower properly, they could be simply engaged manually. And so it was with little fanfare 
that Captain Loft announced to air traffic control that they'd be taking the plane round again while they tried to resolve the issue, after which Doc Still engaged the autopilot to maintain a steady altitude of 2,000 feet while he and Loft got to work examining the control desk. In the meantime, Second Officer Don Repo was sent into the small compartment below the cockpit, known with no great affection as the hellhole, to see if he could confirm visually whether the wheels had come down or not. As the plane veered away from Miami, it headed west over Chrome Avenue at the far edge of the city and out over the vast expanse of Florida's Everglades, a murky swamp of shallow waters, sawgrass and mud. With all pitch black below them, it was to the pilots as though they were shooting straight out into space, with only the twinkling stars on the horizon and above them to distinguish between heaven and earth. While Don was in the underfloor compartment, a short chime rang out from a tiny speaker, which, if he hadn't been off his seat at the time, he would have heard in his left ear. But since he wasn't at his seat, this underwhelming alarm announcing that the plane had for some inexplicable reason been steadily dropping from its supposed 2,000 feet setting, went completely unnoticed. As Don struggled to confirm if the wheels were down or not, Angelo Donadeo squeezed into the tiny hellhole compartment to help him. Before long, however, Captain Loft and First Officer Stockstill concluded that the wheels had lowered after all and promptly informed Miami Air Traffic Control they were now ready to land. At 11.42pm, Stockstill eased left on the control stick to begin turning the plane around when, with a fierce, sickening rush, he sensed something almost imperceptible but unmistakably solid in the darkness below, rushing up toward them. Inside Miami International Airport, friends and family waited expectantly for the arrival of Flight 401. Among them was Sadie Messina, wife of Rosario, the passenger who'd been forced to take a business trip in the middle of their vacation. As she stood staring up at the arrivals board, she turned suddenly at the sound of her husband whistling a familiar tune he was fond of, but her husband was nowhere to be seen. Out in the darkness of the Everglades, about five miles west of Miami Airport, local resident Bob Marquis was perched high up on the seat of his flat-bottomed airboat with only the faintest of light shining from his headlamp to guide him. Marquis had been out hunting for frogs when he looked over to the west toward the horizon and saw an explosive eruption of orange light which blazed for a moment before vanishing in the darkness. Marquis cut the engine and brought the boat to a stop in the tranquil night air. All about was silent, save for the occasional croaking of frogs and the chitter of insects. Bob turned to the east toward the bright lights of Miami, easily discernible under the night sky, then back 
toward the pitch blackness opposite to where the flash of light had come from, then cranked up his engine again and headed out toward it. When Bob cut his engine a few minutes later, among the chorus of frogs, he could just about make out the distant wail and cries of desperate human beings. Powering on a little further, Bob cut the engine again and heard immediately those same cries, only much closer and louder now. Then he realised they were calling out to him. He turned his head to light the waters around him, illuminating great jagged shards of metal jutting out of the swamp, and then a face peered back at him from out of the sawgrass. A man choking and crying in pain as he fought desperately to keep his blood-soaked head above the water. Bob hurriedly launched himself from the boat and pulled the man up onto it. Despite it being just over a foot deep, he'd been so badly injured he was struggling to hold himself up. Then Bob looked up and saw finally the smashed wreckage of the plane's fuselage and the copious number of bodies littered about, some still strapped to their seats, sitting lifeless in the water under the stars. My God, said Bob. Alice Repo awoke in confusion at 4am to find her son John standing over her and the other side of her bed completely empty. Then John explained to her what had happened. Miraculously, Don had survived the crash and was taken to Miami's Hylia Hospital, where he was joined a few hours later by Alice and their children. When Alice arrived, Don was conscious and recognised her instantly as she struggled to contain herself at the sight of him, heavily bandaged up as an array of machines monitored his body's vital signs. At first, it seemed Don would be one of the lucky ones, but over the next 24 hours, things deteriorated rapidly. With Alice and the children forced to sit it out in the waiting room, the medical teams did all they could to save him, but it was to no avail. Roughly 30 hours after he was pulled from the wreckage, second officer Donald Repo succumbed to his injuries. That morning, the family, still in complete shock, arrived back at Alice and Don's home, where Alice's mother was now staying for support. Not long after they got in, a commotion was heard in the kitchen. Roughly 30 birds had somehow broken into the screened patio and were fluttering around in a chaotic scene. Over the years, the odd one or two birds had got trapped inside, but never anything like this. Birds were a great passion of Don's, who'd enjoyed nothing more than watching them feed in their garden as he drank his morning coffee. Alice stood watching them, whipping around the patio as the thought of Don flooded her mind. Then one by one, they inched out of a tiny gap in the screen and flew back into the garden and up into the sky. In total, 101 people lost their lives in the crash of Flight 401, while 75 survived, with most sustaining significant injuries. 
After a lengthy investigation, it was found that Captain Bob Loft had most likely accidentally disengaged the autopilot by bumping the gear stick while trying to reach the faulty light bulb. No one on board had any idea that the plane was losing altitude until it was too late. Among the dead were pilots Captain Bob Loft and First Officer Albert Stockstill, as well as passenger Rosario Messina and the two flight attendants that had stood out so peculiarly in that team photo only days before the crash, Patricia Geisels and Stephanie Stanich. In the days that followed the crash, it was reported that a figure matching Stephanie Stanich's description was seen stumbling away from the wrecked plane and heading off in a daze out into the darkness of the Everglades. Despite the fact that Stanich was killed almost immediately on impact. Just one of the many strange stories that was soon to emerge in the aftermath of this tragic event. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. It's not a crisis line or self-help. It's professional therapy done securely online with a broad range of expertise that may not be locally available in many areas. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. It's more affordable than traditional online therapy, and financial aid is also available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today, and they have a special offer for unexplained listeners. Get 10% off your first month. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash unexplained one zero. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. That's betterhelp.com forward slash unexplained one zero. In March 1973, three months after the fatal crash, another Eastern Airlines L-1011 TriStar jet, number 318 in the fleet, was making its way from New York to Fort Lauderdale in Florida. With the passengers' mealtime approaching, one of the flight attendants was asked to assist a colleague in heating up the meals down in the plane's galley. The galley was a sizable room located under the passenger floor of the plane where all the service trolleys were stored. It also contained all the ovens and refrigeration units on one side and numerous storage compartments on the other. After taking one of the two narrow lifts down into the galley, the attendant emerged only to find her colleague was no longer down there. Thinking she'd be back any minute, the attendant got on with unwrapping the meals, popping them tray by tray into the ovens as the cacophonous hissing drone of the engines filled the space. Before long, however, she felt a strange sensation come over her the unmistakable feeling that she wasn't alone in the room. Thinking her colleague was playing a trick on her and was in fact still there, hiding out in one of the galley's many hidden nooks and crannies, 
The attendant swiftly spun round and pulled open every door she could see, but no one was there. A few weeks later, on the same plane, another flight attendant was busy working alone in the galley when the temperature suddenly plummeted. Assuming something was wrong with the heating system, the flight engineer was promptly called down to fix the problem. When he arrived a few minutes later, he too felt the extreme chill in the air, but when he checked the temperature, it was almost 90 degrees Fahrenheit. And so, one after another, more and more peculiar stories began to circulate among Eastern Airlines staff concerning strange events experienced on plane 318. Most were just vague anecdotes about people feeling a little spooked while left alone in the galley. Not surprising, perhaps, considering the events of the previous year. It was sometime around six months after the crash when the same flight attendant who'd searched for her colleague in the galley's cupboards was once again in the galley of plane number 318 when she was alleged to have seen a strange amorphous cloud like a sudden breath in cold air appear just to the left of the galley lifts. This cloud was said to have grown steadily before coalescing into the shape of a head and then a complete face with ears, a nose and eyes and eventually a pair of glasses all reminiscent of the face of second officer Donald Repo. Sometime toward the end of 1974, Eastern Airlines L-1011, plane number 318, was en route to Mexico City Airport. Back down in the galley, another flight attendant was placing a tray of meals into the oven when she screamed at the sight of someone else's face reflected back at her in the oven glass. Terrified, she dashed straight into the service lift and got up to the passenger deck as quickly as she could. With the attendant too scared to go back down, it was left to a colleague to complete the job, but no sooner had she started loading up the rest of the meals, she too recoiled in terror at the sight of an unfamiliar face reflected again in the oven glass. As word of the apparition spread around the plane, the flight engineer is said to have gone down to investigate only to also find himself face to face with the mysterious image which he apparently identified as the face of Don Repo. Furthermore, as the story goes, Repo then proceeded to warn the engineer that a fire was going to break out imminently in one of the plane's engines. No sooner had this message been communicated, one of the plane's engines began to malfunction. Though able to land successfully in Mexico City, a special ferry team was dispatched from Miami to fly the plane back on two engines to the US for maintenance. Shortly after takeoff, however, another engine inexplicably failed, forcing the crew to land back in Mexico from where it was later fitted with replacement engines. The plane's cockpit voice recorder was also apparently replaced too, 
these stories, all featured in author John Fuller's 1976 book, The Ghost of Flight 401, in which he attempted to verify and track down the provenance of all the peculiar events that were said to have taken place on Eastern Airline flights since the 1972 crash. Fuller claimed that within a year of the incident, there was hardly anyone at the company who hadn't heard the rumours of strange goings-on. Many of the stories seemed to originate from crew working on plane number 318, although crews on other eastern planes had also apparently reported unusual events. The ghost of Don Repo was often at the centre of the stories, although many claimed also to have seen the ghost of Captain Bob Loft, who was said to appear suddenly sitting in one of the passenger's seats, only to then vanish moments later. During his investigation into the supposed hauntings, author John Fuller also raised the possibility that non-structural parts of plane number 310, which crashed in the Everglades, such as radios, electrics and even ovens, had been cannibalised from the wreckage and refitted into other planes in the fleet. Could it be, he thought, that something of the event had been absorbed by these repurposed pieces and then transferred into their adopted aircraft through a supposed process called psychometry? After the release of Fuller's book, however, Eastern Airlines strenuously denied that any parts of the crashed aircraft had been reused Though many were said to be deeply traumatised by the sighting of Don Repo and Bob Loft, it was widely accepted that their presence was benign, with some suggesting Don's reason for haunting the plane was in fact to try and prevent any more of them from crashing. Intrigued by this idea, Fuller turned to self-described mediums Pat and Bud Hayes to see if they could help him find answers directly from the spirit realm. The couple, who were founders of the Arthur Ford International Academy of Mediumship based in Miami at the time, essentially a school for the apparent development of psychical powers, were only too glad to help. And so it was that on one bright morning in 1975, a selection of the Hayes' best students including some as young as 10 to 12 years old, gathered together in a classroom at the Arthur Ford Academy. With none being told of the precise purpose of the session, 12 envelopes were then passed among them. 10 contained pieces of detritus from the wrecked aircraft that still littered the crash site, while two contained dummy artefacts unrelated to the crash. With much of the session garnering mixed results, one of the envelopes with a piece of wreckage in it was eventually passed to one 30-year-old woman. Fuller watched on as she clutched the envelope tightly in her hand, then closed her eyes and began to breathe deeply. Pat encouraged her from the front of the class to just let the energy flow from the envelope and concentrate on reaching her meditative state. When her breathing finally settled, the woman spoke. An airplane that lands in water, a missing person. Feel as if I am close to the airport. 
I see light, then I don't see them anymore. Feel a pain in the forehead and eyes. There is a very restless spirit at the crash site. He will not rest until his mother knows that he believes in the spirit of God. Male voice saying, my mother must stop working so hard and she must stop worrying so much. Please tell her not to cry. I believe. Following on from their sessions at the Arthur Ford Academy, John Fuller and his research assistant, Elizabeth Manzioni, made the decision to try and contact Don Repo directly through a Ouija board. As is later described in the book, not only do they apparently make contact with him, but he also makes a request of them that they get a message to his wife Alice. Though understandably cautious about contacting her with such an outlandish story, Fuller nonetheless took the plunge and wrote her a letter introducing himself and explained more about the book he was working on. As it happened, Alice had just finished reading another of John Fuller's books that she'd enjoyed when she received his letter and so agreed to meet with him to hear more. On Sunday, March 7th, 1976, she and her daughter Donna met with Fuller and Manzioni at a hotel opposite Miami International Airport, where the author outlined all their various findings. In return, they learned more about Don, the loving father and husband, who was adored for his spontaneous and generous spirit. Both Alice and Donna had been mystified by the numerous reports of Don's ghost being sighted on aircraft, which they'd heard about a few times before. Though they didn't have a particular opinion on that, it turned out that Alice had a few stories of her own. There was the strange phone call that seemed to predict Don's death a year before the accident, and then the baffling incident with the birds the morning her husband died. One night, she woke up and felt a presence lying beside her in bed. Reaching over to the empty side, she was certain she felt Don's hand slip into hers. That night, she laid awake for as long as she could, just feeling the weight of him beside her. But when she woke the following morning, the presence had gone. Alice asked John and Elizabeth, about the message they'd apparently received from Don on the Ouija board. As they explained, the first two they were unsure about. One had something to do with mice causing problems in a closet, while another was about a jar of pennies they'd kept in their son's bedroom. Alice and Donna looked wide-eyed at each other in response. Alice had only just recently resolved an issue with mice who'd made a nest in her attic, a space that could only be reached after going through a large closet. As for the pennies, as Alice explained, Don used to collect ones with pictures of Native Americans on them. Alice had moved them into her son John's bedroom. The last message to her was a simple one. Alice Norco Repo, I love you. Never forget, I love you. Good night. Norco was Alice's maiden name, 
which few people knew. On 29th of December 1976, the four-year anniversary of the crash, journalist Frederick Tasker wrote a review of John Fuller's book for Night Newspapers. Speaking to Alice Repo about these extraordinary revelations, she confirmed that every part of the book that concerned her was accurate as far as she knew. If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help support us, you can now do so via Patreon. To receive access to ad-free episodes, just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplained pod to sign up. Unexplained the book and audiobook, featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase through Amazon, Barnes & Noble and Waterstones, among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean-Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast. Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters— with new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.